This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. In college, I majored in elementary ed. My friends would make fun of me often. I'd come back from class and they would say, you're going to teach us how to glitter now, Gabe? What did you guys learn today? And, and so uh, that sort of rooting for me, though, helped me learn all kinds of great things. If you're familiar with Gabe Lyons, that might be surprising. Gabe's someone you're more likely to see on a stage at a large conference talking with culture-making leaders than you are to see him wielding a piece of chalk or especially a glitter stick in a classroom. Finally, my senior year, most people would not know this, uh, I ended up graduating with a general studies degree. <laughs> no, no major, general studies, five minors. In four years, I'd taken like 35 more credit hours than I needed. But if you followed Gabe's work, it kind of makes sense. He's interested in everything. Gabe, with his wife Rebecca, is the founder of Q Ideas. And at the conferences and events that he hosts, you'll find him talking with journalists, politicians, artists, fashion designers, and more. Gabe's a teacher, and his work at Q seeks new ways to teach, engage leaders, and help Christians think about culture. Leaders were showing up at events and basically being told what the answers are to every single question or problem in the world, not always being taught to think. We took a page out of the European education model and said, we just want to ask better questions because we believe you're smart enough to think for yourself. So Q began as a conference, and now we've had a decade of those conferences bringing together um, leaders in every channel of culture. And probably a third of the leaders that come are connected in some way to this church channel, but two-thirds are business leaders, people in media, arts and entertainment. We're able to uh, get a nice collection of people together who don't normally sit at the same tables, don't normally have these conversations, and now they're dealing with the real-world current issues we're facing, as well as dreaming and imagining how might God want to use them in the midst of the industry He's called them to. From Harbor Media, you're listening to Cultivated, conversations about faith and work. I'm Mike Cosper, and on this podcast, I sit down with leaders, thinkers, artists, entrepreneurs, and I invite them to tell their stories, to talk about how their faith has given a shape and purpose to their work, and to describe what they see happening in the world around us. Today's guest is Gabe Lyons, and for more than a decade, he's been working to help Christians understand the part they play in culture. Part of the work of Q from its earliest years was to help the church reimagine it has this historic role to play in the world. It should be leading in how we shape the imagination of our neighbors and our communities and our cities and our industries to imagine what is what does this look like redeemed? You know, what is the redemptive edge of this industry? And how am I supposed to be a part of imagining that, creating that, inviting other people into it? What Gabe calls the redemptive edge can be found in any field, politics, arts, sciences. Christians aren't always known to occupy these spaces, but when they do, they can bear witness and influence in profound ways. Part of Gabe's mission is to call attention to the need for Christians in these spaces and to encourage them to resist the temptation to sit on the margins. You have people like Francis Collins, who headed the Human Genome Project, a landmark contribution to the world of science. I don't want to suggest that's not happening in certain categories, but you know, I was talking to a bioethicist the other day who said, when I go into these bioethicist meetings and we're having true ethics conversations about how we should think about science and medicine and embryos and so on and so forth, 
I look around the room and there's not one Christian standing there having those conversations. I'm alone. Where are the heavyweights? Where are the people who can bring the intellectual arguments, the moral arguments, can communicate in a way that they would gain respect from their peers and be appreciated to actually shape the conversation? If we're not showing up, we, we're part of the problem. And, and so those that just sit on the sidelines and complain about the darkness or, hey, the world's getting so bad and I feel marginalized and yet they're not showing up and they're not bringing their best to contribute to the common questions every human being asks, then we have nothing to complain about. Showing up, sacrificing, and doing hard work is something that was modeled early in Gabe's life by his parents. My parents, man, good godly people. They became Christians just before I was born. And that just shaped everything about their life. I mean, everything. And so it was church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. My dad basically came out of the Vietnam War, went straight into this work as a welder and spent 40 years, uh, you know, until retirement doing this job day in, day out for a government contracted agency. And I was deep in the heart of like church culture and church life. And didn't know anything different and and in fact love it and love that that was my heritage and history and see now later in life how much that's i think prepared me for some of the work we do today a lot of folks who grew up in that kind of whole life immersion in church became embittered by it and frustrated Right now, you can walk in the door of almost any bookstore, and you can find a half dozen books published just in the last year or two by Christians in their 20s and 30s, describing how life in the youth group harmed or hindered their faith. I asked Gabe if he experienced that in any way. No, not not at all, not not in the least. In fact, um, you know, I, I just think that environment, that kind of culture for me, created amazing friendships, put me in in a, in a way where there was a consistency about life, uh, where I grew up, where my parents were on the same page with my teachers, with my youth group, with other parents, uh, really created a, you know, in, in a big way, a bubble. And, and so I think right away when I graduated from college, I moved to Atlanta, I started to experience the world. I think in those moments I was going, man, I was really sheltered. I didn't realize the world was maybe the way that it is. And, and I had about a five-year season there where I got very exposed and realized how differently I had been raised and what was good about it, what was bad about it. Um, but I think now that I have children who are heading into those teenage years, um, I have such appreciation for my parents, their sacrifice. They would, they would, they would save their money. I mean, we didn't take big family vacations. They, they were putting their money into me going to a Christian school. They cared that much about my brother and I having that kind of upbringing. And I would say now at this age and stage of life for me, I look back and go, man, what a sacrifice. And I'm, I'm really grateful for it. After college, he moved to Atlanta, married his wife, Rebecca, and was working for a company called Enjoy that serves pastors and church leaders. But he started to feel a burden for his friends who were outside the church. Anytime a conversation came up about church or the Christian faith, there was immediately kind of a wall that would start to go up relationally with people who were younger. Uh, at the time, I had no idea what that was. I'd grown up, again, in this, this Christian kind of bubble environment. Uh, and yet now, life in Atlanta, it was a bigger world, exposed to a lot more uh, perspectives, people of other faiths or no faith at all. And it started to become clear to me that younger people in particular just didn't see a need to be a part of, of church, even if they cared about spirituality and faith. Uh, that led us actually to create a, a research study because I wanted to understand what would people across the American culture say who are younger. And so uh, David Kinnaman and I worked together on a research study. It later became a book on Christian. 
And the research helped spell out what was going on. And we found out that 16 to 29-year-olds, again, this is back in 2005 to 2007, felt like Christianity was no longer uh, what Jesus intended it to be. They thought it had become quite self-righteous. You know, words like judgmental, hypocritical, too political, only interested in proselytizing, anti-homosexual. These were the kind of perceptions they were associating with the Christian faith. And it started to become very clear to me, oh my goodness, this... Of course, people don't want to be a part of this. This this actually wasn't who Jesus was. And and we've become something very different than what I think he intended uh, for the church, and people were rejecting that. So we thought it might be time to start something new. A burden in my heart continued to develop for my generation. Christian faith was totally irrelevant to them. That burden developed into me deciding to launch out. And so now, uh, over that decade, we began Q, and, and I started to just become more immersed in understanding the Christian's call to be a part of renewing culture, uh, to make sure their life isn't only about stating beliefs, but demonstration. And uh, that ultimately led us to an opportunity to start to pursue life and ministry in New York City with several friends who are planting churches. And John Tyson and Trinity Grace Church um, had been a, a good friend for a long time. And so we just said, Rebecca and I said, look, we're, we're in our mid-30s. Like we could just live the comfortable life here in Atlanta where we're at and just sort of coast and that'd be nice and good. Um, But man, it felt like we were being pushed to say, no, risk it all again. Like put it all on the table again, sell your things and like pick up and go explore what God's trying to do in the world and, and, you know, live out the things you're talking about um, where it's not maybe as comfortable. Being in a cultural hub like New York provided great opportunities for Q, but it also presented challenges. When we arrived, I would say we were just full of hope and vigor and like excited to be a part of a church community that lived in the same blocks and was part of a parish that was going to you know, be able to walk everywhere and, and just experience life together. Uh, and so we realized very quickly, you know, New York City, you're not going to bend the rules with New York. Like I know we first pulled our moving truck up the first morning and two things happened. One, we got a ticket for like $300 because it was parked in the wrong, like the wrong little area. So lesson lesson learned there. And then secondly, as we were moving in, um, we had like a, a big um, like headboard for one of the beds and hadn't measured correctly. And so there was no way to get this headboard up through the um, stairwell. And so, you know, all of a sudden we're on the phone trying to figure out how are we going to get this in? And of course, you know, in New York, they're used to taking cranes around and opening glasses and windows and putting it in through the window. And so all of a sudden, you know, we were getting a huge bill to move a bed frame into the to the wall. And, and in the middle of it, I'm just going, man, let's just throw this away. I don't I don't think it's worth that. And, and so we were just immediately introduced to New York life. This is not going to be easy. And I think that's what our experience was like for the four years that we lived there. Shortly after the move, his next book came out. Like UnChristian, it was co-written with David Kinnaman, and it was written in part as a response to the problems they discussed in that book. David and I worked hard to not try to isolate or label any particular people or organizations that had contributed to these problems. We took it on ourselves and said, we've contributed to this problem. Like, we're part of the problem. And until we can acknowledge that, we have nothing to offer in terms of, like, hope forward. And so over those few years, just started to track the stories of Christians who were really being faithful, who were actually living out a very different narrative, who were not being the judgmental types or hypocritical or too political. Um, they were they were the ones who were being provoked to engage culture wherever they lived, whatever workplace they were called into. And they were doing it creatively. They were doing it with excellence. They were demonstrating some of the 
the real things that, that you look around Christian or not and go, man, I respect that person. They're, they're amazing. And I want to be like them. I want to hang out with them. And so that was the beginning of starting to tell more of those stories. It seems to me that the trends you can see in unchristian are undeniable. The church has struggled to offer a compelling witness and a compelling way of life in our culture. And for that reason, many find Christianity in general, and the church in particular, irrelevant or even harmful. And like any other moment in history, when the church's witness has grown weak or stale, the pathway to renewing our witness is repentance. In fact, as Martin Luther would put it, that's the whole of the Christian life anyway. Part of our repentance might include a revaluing of work and a reassessment of the need for Christians to do meaningful, culture-shaping work in the marketplace. Going back to something from earlier about the bioethicist who wonders where the Christians are, I asked Gabe, where are they? Where are the culture-shaping Christian leaders, and why are they few and far between? Some have not taken seriously uh, this calling. The thought was full-time ministry was to be a missionary, to be a pastor, to go seminary, there wasn't good theological teaching in a lot of evangelical churches that really pressed in to say, look, God's wired you, uniquely given you gifts, experiences, desires, hopes, dreams to go do amazing things in the world. And that's full-time ministry too. First-class Christians were the ones in quote-unquote full-time ministry. Everybody else was second-class and they were just supposed to give money and contribute to the church. And that kind of thinking basically let an entire generation kind of slip away and not understand or be equipped or discipled to know what it means to go into their workplace and actually lead well, create, be the leaders, uh, and do more. I, I would say that their Christian faith motivates them to do more than just like a prayer meeting once a week in their office. You know, that maybe that's step one, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about full life, whole life integration of how they're leading in the place God's called them. And I think what we're recovering now, and I think through the work of these kinds of conversations, it's an important contribution where a new generation's not thinking that way. I mean, I've seen this start to shift now, and I'm seeing college students and 20-somethings, they're not living in that dichotomy. They know that the things God's wired them to do are part of his redemptive plan for his mission in the world. And so I'm thrilled about where we're headed. Uh, but I think there's been a, a bit of a gap there um, that would explain why there might not be as many bioethicists as needed at this very moment. So there are two pressures here that are internal for the church. There's a need for a more humble, faithful, winsome witness to the world, and a need for a better understanding of how our work is part of God's redemptive work. At the same time, not all of our problems are internal. Outside of the church, pressures are mounting that would steer Christians away from orthodox convictions and beliefs about sexuality, secularism, and more. And so while the church struggles on one hand with its witness, and perhaps with its pursuit of excellence— it also faces marginalization from the outside, from people who think that Christians with orthodox beliefs have no place in the cultural conversation. In the midst of that tension, many Christians are struggling to find their way. One of the things I learned in New York with Rebecca, we'd been married at that time, you know, 12 years, moved to New York. You start living in a small space with your entire family, and all of a sudden, things start to come out that you didn't realize were there. We're having fights and arguments about things that I had no idea had built up, resentments over years that had had sat there and, and festered. And, and in the comfort of sort of space and no pressure at all, we didn't think about it. We didn't talk about it. We didn't need to. We were, we were busy enjoying life and just ignoring things. And when you're pressured like that and it starts to squeeze, well, whatever's inside starts to come out. And I think that's what's happening right now in the American church and for Christians in general. We're getting squeezed right now and you're starting to see what's coming out, what's really there. And I think that can ultimately produce something really beautiful, but it's also a change in American life. And there are some negatives, you know, I'm not, I'm not praising that, man, Christians should be marginalized, 
what I'm saying is there's always something positive God's going to do through these moments. And so our job is to continue engaging culture, but also to remain faithful. We don't need to see the pendulum swing all the way to where we just try to keep up with where the culture's going on every social issue, every opinion. No, we're called to be countercultural. We're called to be different, but we can do that in a way that's loving, kind, winsome, compassionate, and invites others into that narrative that we believe actually will bring the most flourishing for their own life. A couple of years ago, Gabe put this value into practice in a way that many conservative Christians thought was dangerous. At a Q event, he invited writers, speakers, and scholars who advocate for the inclusion of gay marriage into the life of the church. Among them was Matthew Vines, author of a book called God and the Gay Christian. Most pro-LGBT writers argue that biblical passages prohibiting homosexuality are relics from a different culture and argue that the Bible isn't inerrant. But Vines is different. Vines considers himself an evangelical and argues that the problem isn't with the text, it's our interpretation. His book was welcomed with a lot of fanfare, especially by evangelical Christians who were eager to have someone making this case, freeing them up from the burden of going against the cultural flow with regard to sexual ethics. So when Vines was invited to speak at Q, a controversy broke out, with people accusing Q of going soft on sexual ethics or of endorsing and embracing these views. I asked Gabe if, in the aftermath of all of that, he'd do it again. Yeah, no, I'd definitely do it again. And and part of our goal at Q is to expose Christian leaders to the conversations people are really having. We want this stage to be a place where we can expose all of that thinking and let truth stand for itself. And so I invited not only Matthew Vines, David Gushy, and Andrew Sullivan there, one of the leaders of the gay rights movement, but we also had other people there uh, who were representing different points of view. We had Deb Hirsch speaking about her story we had Pastor Dan Kimball out in the Bay Area, you know, as a part of that conversation. We had Julie Rogers in on that conversation. And and we really spent time talking about the different points of view on the sexuality question. And it became very clear to me after studying, reading scripture, understanding how the church has thought about this for 2,000 years, that it was important to talk about this conversation and to really let people see why the biblical sexual ethic holds up even in this moment where the social pressure is so tough and 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 so noisy and loud and in your face we believe that at Q it's important to talk about that but we didn't want to do it without welcoming in the other part of the conversation even if i personally disagree with it even if Q doesn't support that point of view or think that that's helpful for the church to go down that path you don't like to have a conversation about somebody without them being able to be there. And so we had them there and it was an incredible conversation. And I think every single person in the room that day felt a deep appreciation, respect that they um, got to hear civility, a conversation that wasn't heated, but an exchange that was honest and truthful. And I think exposed people, um, some to stories of people who are gay they'd never heard before. They just did not have a gay friend in their life or somebody who was a Christian who was working through that. So I was very glad that they got to to meet Matthew and very glad they got to meet others um, that were there. Um, and at the same point, I was glad that they could see that the truth of scripture and, and how we think about that in our life holds up even under the weight of, of sort of the, the social pressure that people are experiencing today. Fifteen years ago, Gabe and Rebecca had their first child, Cade, who was born with Down syndrome. This led to yet another opportunity for them to try and influence and change culture. I came across in his first year of life this data point that 91% of parents who find out that their child is diagnosed with Down syndrome in the womb, um, they terminate the pregnancy. 
I couldn't believe it. I thought, man, this must be some made-up, exaggerated statistic. And as I worked through it, the New York Times is quoting this, and you start to see it show up everywhere, this enormous number because of the fear parents have that they just don't know what life's going to be like and the pressure from insurance companies and from doctors who don't want to get sued for malpractice, who want to be super clear. We, we found through the research that the way they even deliver the diagnosis to the parent is usually in a negative. And the assumption leans towards, of course, you'd want to terminate this pregnancy because this is going to ruin your life and your sibling's life and you're never going to have a life and you're never going to be able to have a job and work. And it's complete lies. So many ways in which we as human beings assess people, you know, like what, whatever they can produce is their value. We've learned through Cade, like, no, that's not, that's not how you value another human being. You value them because they're made in God's image and they're worth more than just what you think they can produce or how they can contribute. In the light of that statistic, his instincts as a leader and a teacher kicked in. A lot of education has to happen. And so my wife and I and several friends years ago helped create a booklet um, called Understanding a Down Syndrome Diagnosis. And essentially it's a download, but it's designed for any doctor's office that's a part of the process of monitoring pregnancy so that uh, when a parent finds out this diagnosis, they actually have a resource to give to them. Uh, and then we also created a version for doctors that help them know how to deliver the diagnosis. Andy Crouch says if you want to change culture, you have to make culture. And this feels like a great example of that approach. An obvious problem reveals itself, this horrible statistic about aborting children with Down syndrome. And to change things, Gabe and Rebecca made something. Everybody was welcoming that. They said, we've never had anything like this. We didn't know how to talk about it. Thank you for doing this. And it just reminded me that, look, people are looking for this, these kind of resources. They're looking for a better imagination. They're looking for um, ways to tell better stories. And, and maybe that's ways in which we as Christians can step in and create. And, do something about it, not just talk about how bad this problem is, but actually let's create culture that actually has an opportunity uh, to change things. It's an act of imagination that runs against our typical impulses. When most of us think about abortion activism, we think about protesting clinics or legal options or the Supreme Court or crisis pregnancy centers. And all of those efforts have value and have their place. But in this case, by making this resource available, they had the opportunity to work with and serve existing institutions and organizations, working from the inside and working to change the way people thought about Down syndrome. Doing it this way, they helped to reshape imaginations. And I think we've seen, we've seen the American conscience continue to shift, continue to move to the place that we as Christians believe has always been true, that life matters from conception on. Gabe and Rebecca's booklet is now the highest recommended resource across the country for people who are in the moment of decision about a Down syndrome diagnosis during pregnancy. You can find that resource and much more at lettercase.org, which we'll have linked in the show's notes as well at harbormedia.com. Gabe's newest book was published this summer. David Kinnaman and I, the president of Barna, came together again to do a project over the last two years. We had done Unchristian, the book, 10 years ago together, and essentially found ourselves once again involved in a lot of research and studies about where the culture was going, how people in American life were feeling about religion in general. And it led us to create uh, this project called Good Faith, being a Christian when society thinks you're irrelevant and extreme. And, you know, 46% of people said religion is part of the problem. In this book, we really try to apply what does good faith look like in the midst of the biggest questions we're facing. We really try to apply what does it look like to take biblical authority in our life and actually walk that out in some of the difficult conversations that we're having to have with our children today 
to prepare them for the world that we're having to have with our neighbors. Uh, and so it's really a resource we're finding. It's equipping pastors, but but then their leaders, their church people, with how to carry on sort of the everyday conversations a lot of people are pretty nervous to have. So given all of the research he's done, given the influence he's been able to see through his own work and through the culture-shaping people who've been involved with Q Ideas, where does Gabe think we're headed? There's no question the pressure will continue to be on for Christians to renounce some of their beliefs, some of their points of view that don't align well with kind of the new cultural air that everybody's breathing. Our message is to stand strong, to be faithful, to look at biblical characters like Daniel, who in the midst of the Babylonian Empire practiced his faith, prayed three times a day, even when a city ordinance came out and said, you can't pray anymore. He went home, opened his windows, and continued to pray as he always had. That's what faithfulness looks like. We're not concerned with the consequences. We trust God with that. What we're concerned with is actually how we're going to operate underneath a new kind of pressure. And so uh, I don't think we need to be antagonistic about it. I don't I don't think uh, we need to be the kind of people that are walking around, woe is me, and we're victimized. We are to be people of hope, and we need to bring hope and leadership to our communities. I love the balance he strikes there. We need to be realistic about what's happening around us, but we also need to be hopeful. In whatever way we can, we should try to shape and influence the culture around us. And if the pressure mounts even further, if we face lions or lawsuits, we should, as Gabe put it, leave those consequences in God's hands. Our burden is faithfulness. Faithful to the God who rescued us, faithful to the scriptures he gave us, and faithful to the mandate he sends us out into the world with. A mandate to work hard, to work well, and to try to shape the world in such a way that it looks a little bit more like the kingdom of God. That it values life and human dignity a little more. That it's a little more humane, a little more generous, even with people we might disagree with. These are all things that I think Gabe models well, and I look forward to seeing how he continues to shape and influence both the world and the church. You can find out a lot more about Gabe Lyons and Q at qideas.org. You'll also find a ton of resources, articles, talks, books, and more. In April 2017, Q will be hosting their national conference again in Nashville, Tennessee. These events always bring in an incredible array of people. You can learn more and register at Q Ideas website. We'll be back next week with another episode of Cultivated, and I'll be talking to the novelist Brett Lott about how and why he became a writer, how his faith informs his writing, and what it was like to meet Oprah Winfrey. The guy goes, this is Brett Lott. I said, yeah. So I'm calling from Chicago. My boss wants to talk to you about a project she's working on. Can you hold? And I said, okay. And then he put me on hold, and there's this music, and I only later realized it's I'm Every Woman, you know, Shaka Khan, which was her theme song at this particular moment. And then the phones, you know, I hear this click, and then a woman yells, Brett, this is Oprah. We're going to have so much fun. Today's show was produced and edited by me with editorial help from Scott Slusher and Lachlan Coffey. It was mixed by Mark Owens at Resonate Recordings. They specialize in podcasts, and you can find them at ResonateRecordings.com. Daniela Rueda is our administrator. Our logos are by Chris Bennett. Our theme song and soundtrack is by Dan Phelps. You can find them at OceanographicRecords.com. Additional scoring was done by the Bitter Clingers. And special thanks today to Dan Darling and Elizabeth Graham at the ERLC. Uh, a whole lot of the interviews that are on this season of the podcast were made possible by them and their hospitality. So thank you all once again for all you did for Harbor this season. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray.
United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.